You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. As you return to your seats, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 9 today. Hebrews chapter 9, big big chunk of scripture today, and we're not going to take each and every word and every little phrase today, but uh, Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 28 is where we're going to be. Verses 15 through 28. It's been a a tough week. Lots of images filling our TV screens that are maybe your internet news if you watch it on the internet instead of TV, but uh, images out of Afghanistan, images out of Haiti, images out of places in our country that are being devastated by fire and flood and by the sickness and the, the things that are going on with people in, in that situation and in other sicknesses and illnesses there. And it's just been a tough week. It, I, I, put, I put a thing on our Facebook page earlier this week, a story that Tony Campolo told that he was in Port-au-Prince, Haiti and eating at a restaurant one time. And a, uh, he looked out the window and there were street kids pressing their nose up against the window. And the, the, um, the waiter came over and just casually pulled the shade down and said, just go ahead and enjoy your meal. Don't worry about it. Uh, too often we pull the shade down. Too often we just, we don't want to see the images. We don't want to hear the stories. We just, we want to insulate ourselves from that. And when we insulate ourselves from that, what that deprives us of is the ability for God to grow compassion and empathy in our lives. It deprives us of the ability for God to, to move in our lives, to, to want to act and react and find something to do, be it prayer, be it financial support, being going and assisting. And we got to stop pulling the shade down. We've got to start letting the hurts of the world come to us because we have been made as the church God's answer to the hurts of the world outside of its need for salvation. God has appointed his church to be his hands, his feet, his body to go and to, to help and to provide healing and provide support and provide work and, and every other thing you can think of in these situations. So it's been a tough week. It's a tough week to get prepared for Hebrews every week. I told you back in February, this was going to be a grind. And it is. It's a difficult book to walk through. And praise Jesus, come 1st of April, we'll be done. Some of y'all are going, 1st of April, yeah. We're going to take a break the end of November and December for Advent, and then we're going to finish up in January, February, and March before we get into Easter in April. But it's worth it. It's worth it to be challenged by the Scriptures. It's worth it to be challenged by things we're unfamiliar with. It's worth it to be challenged by Scripture that hopefully is requiring you to say, oh, this is talking about this, but I don't know about this, so I need to go back here and I need to read about this, so I better understand this. Did you follow all that? Hopefully God's doing that in your life. So let's, let's look at Hebrews 9, 15 through 28, because what it's going to remind us of at the end of this passage today is this, that for we who are in Christ, our eggs are not in this basket of the world. They're just not. We eagerly wait for him to return, to come and to make things right. And we'll be talking about that towards the end. Hebrews 9, 15 through 28, just follow along with me if you will. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 
since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. And indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of these heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself." And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Your first point today is this. Jesus' death set in motion... The new covenant, the new covenant that was referenced back in chapter 8, the new covenant that uh, takes us back to Jeremiah 31 and the promise of God, this new covenant of writing His law on our hearts, of forgiving our sins and remembering them no more, of us being His people and He being our God. All of that new covenant was set into motion by Jesus' death on the cross. He becomes what's, co- what's called in verse 15, our mediator. He becomes our mediator by virtue of his obedience, particularly by virtue of his obedience in death. What does a mediator do? A mediator seeks to to bridge or build a bridge between opposing parties to create agreements or reconciliation or or different things to, to bring two people or two groups of people who are at odds with one another to the middle so that they can have healing and reconciliation. Uh, When I provide marital counseling, for example, I'm often really a mediator between husband and wife to try to help him understand what she's saying and feeling and help her understand what he's saying and feeling and try to help get them to the middle. I become a mediator in that point. He is our mediator to God because we need reconciliation to God because of our sin. And understand this, there are two things you have to believe to be true to not only get something out of this message today, but really to get anything out of the Bible and out of the story of God. And that is this, that there is one God, and He is God above any other created or thought of or imagined God. 
He's above all. He is the, the only God that matters. He's the only God that's true. He's the one God that is above all. And the second thing we need to believe is that we are sinful persons. That we are born into sin. That without a radical heart change from God, I don't mean a religious change. I don't mean just having good morals. I don't mean just having a good family life. Without a radical heart change produced by the Holy Spirit of God in our lives, we are separate and will forever be separated from God. And you have to believe those two things. You can't believe part of one of them. You can't believe one of them without the other. The only way Jesus' work as a mediator is effective for you and for me is if we say yes to those two things. Just as, to go back to my analogy, just as when I provide marital counseling, one of the things we often do in that case is one of the first meetings we have is that we talk about truths. Truths about the marriage, truths about the love they have for one another, truths about what they have to have as a goal for that counseling. And if the husband and or the wife don't believe those things, it really matters not what advice I give to them because they're never going to meet. We have to say yes to those two things. God is the only God, and he is just, and he is holy, and he is righteous, and he is forgiving, and he is merciful, and he is graceful, and he has existed since before the beginning of the world, and he will exist after this world passes away. And because of my sin and your sin, without Jesus, we are forever separated from him. He becomes our mediator. And that's what the author tells us. He's the mediator of a new covenant, verse 15, so that those who are called may receive the eternal, promised eternal inheritance. He sets in motion the new covenant. I want you to see uh, a few things here in this passage from verse 15 through 17, for example. Look there at the end of verse 15. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What does this mean? It means that the death of Jesus was retroactive in that it took God's people who had trusted in him by faith, who had trusted in him as God, but for whom Christ had not yet appeared, his death was retroactive to them that they would receive the promised eternal inheritance. A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first, uh, under the first covenant. This is the way Paul uses the same understanding in Romans 3. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Most of you either know that or have probably heard that at some point, but he goes on to talk about this justification through the redemption of Christ Jesus. Verse 25, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And he says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why, why was this necessary for Jesus' death to be retroactive? So that God would be fully just in all dealings with humanity. For it would be unjust of God to say that those who existed under the first covenant, the old covenant, got saved a different way than those who existed after the first covenant was done. 
that would be unjust of God, that would not be fair to God. And so the, the blood of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ is retroactive to them and it brings them the same salvation that we who are now under the new covenant receive in Christ Jesus. The death ends or completed the first covenant and it inaugurates or sets in motion the new covenant. Retroactive for some, proactive for everybody else. And this may have been an answer that the author had. There may have been a question from these Jewish Christians. Well, what about our ancestors? What about those who, who were still under the old sacrificial system? How are they getting saved? And the author answers it right here. It's retroactively. It's a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions of their sins. Look then in verses 16 and 17. For where a will is involved... The death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. This is a unique situation here where all throughout the, the book of Hebrews we've seen this word translated covenant. And here in verses 16 and 17, some of your translations use the word either will or testament. But it is the same word that has been translated covenant all along. So why the difference? Why here in these two verses does it be, does, is it called a will or a testament? Well, uh, the author is using this in a very legal sense. Justification, which we'll see in just a moment, is a very legal term. It's to be declared not guilty. It's to have the guilt that is on, on a person removed. Uh, the, the, the way we would use it in our terminology so in court systems would be an acquittal, for example. Acquittal and justification are very similar issues. And so he uses this, and, and some translators have chosen to, instead of using the word covenant, use will or testament to give us that legal sense that, again, the death of Jesus retroactively legally redeems those who are under the first covenant, and it proactively legally redeems those under the new covenant because a death has occurred. Alyssa and I have a will, like many of you all do. Hopefully you do. And Katie and Kenzie and Gabriel and Kiki technically already have possession of everything that's in that will. It goes to them, but it does not get enacted to go to them. They won't fully receive it until our passing. And all who had believed in God under the first covenant had possessed the promises of the covenant. All who have believed in God through Jesus Christ now have the possessions, but it didn't come into effect without the full reception of the death of Jesus Christ. Now some would say, well, but, but there's promises that have yet to be fulfilled. Wasn't, weren't covenantal promises about land and milk and honey and all these things? Didn't Israel already, in effect, inherit all that when they were taken into the promised land? All of that is what we've seen in Hebrews, which all of that was partial or copies of the better things that are to come. And both the Hebrew in the Old Covenant redeemed by the cross and the believer Hebrew and Gentile in the New Covenant redeemed by Christ will receive an eternal inheritance that is far better than anything anybody has received earthly to this point. It's a tension that's theologically described as already not yet. We have received, we are in possession of, it's kind of like having an airplane ticket 
Once you have that ticket, you have that flight secured, but until you go through the airport and you step on that plane, the realization that ticket is not there. We have possession. We are in possession of the spiritual promises. We are in possession of the spiritual blessings. We already own these things by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ. But until he returns to one day set all things right by his blood, by his suffering, by his resurrection, we are living in an already not yet tension. In verses 18 through 20, he, he goes through this issue of the inauguration of the first covenant by blood. Time does not allow us to really dive deep into this, but what I would encourage you to do today is sometime this week, read 18 through 22, and then simultaneously read Exodus chapter 24. Because this is what the author of Hebrews is referring back to. He's referring back to this moment where, uh, where Moses goes through this ceremonial cleansing by blood to inaugurate this old covenant that God had placed with them. But I, I want to take a few moments and deal with this piece of it. Because when you read 18 through 22, when you read Exodus 24, and honestly just lots of different passages in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, when you talk about some of the songs that we've sung, about washed in the blood and being redeemed by the blood. There are some who say, God, God is just painted out as this bloodthirsty deity. There's this person who just is describing it as being, being having blood everywhere and, and, and just, you know, our, our finite minds can't wrap ourselves around that. I want us to understand that through the Old Testament system, God was operating in a way that was very much common in the ancient world, the ancient Greeks sacrificed black animals, black-skinned, black-furred animals to the gods of the underworld. They sacrificed swift, fast horses to their sun god. They sacrificed dogs to the guardian of the dead. The ancient Syrians would sacrifice fish to their, their believed or their perceived goddess of the sea. We know the Mayans sacrificed humans. I, I know that many a Chinese emperor sacrificed his soldiers to have them buried with him after his death to protect him in the afterlife. Within the ancient world, sacrifice, both animal and human, was a very common thing. So God is working through, particularly under the Old Covenant, He's working through a very cultural common thing that everybody in the world would have understood. That there had to be death, there had to be sacrifice to appease the gods. But God makes a distinct difference in the way He does it with the Hebrews and eventually with Jesus. Look back, uh, if you will, or think back, if you will, a few weeks ago. I talked about Leviticus 17, verse 11. I'll read it for you again. The life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. Blood sacrifice of animal, blood sacrifice of humans was, was made to appease certain gods and certain religions and beliefs, but it was never provided for any kind of a covering or an atonement. And Kent Hughes in his commentary says, The Old Covenant sailed on a sea of blood for two vast reasons. First, to emphasize the seriousness of sin. And second, to emphasize the costliness of forgiveness. I want you to think about what he's writing in verses 18 through 22 and how it corresponds to Exodus 24 and other places. I want you to consider this for a moment. Consider a people who were largely agricultural in nature. 
Consider a people, communities of people who, for them, animals meant everything. And so as they would bring these animals to sacrifice, and, and if you're unfamiliar with the system, they were to bring their best. They weren't to bring the lame, the maimed, the disease-ridden. Matter of fact, in, in the prophet Malachi, it's one of God's uh, chief complaints with the priest in the Old Testament with the prophet Malachi is that the priests are offering their second best, third best, their fourth best animals in sacrifice. He called for them to bring their best. And so every time a sacrifice was made, whether it was a daily sacrifice or whether it was ultimately to the the day of atonement, two things were reiterated and emphasized. One, that sin was costly. And two, that sin resulted in death. That sin was costly and that sin resulted in death. And so Jesus has been made this mediator of this new covenant. This new covenant that calls us to be, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1, people who offer ourselves, our bodies, our lives as living sacrifices and understand that's called to bring our best. That's not a living sacrifice for us to give God the second best or the third best or or what's left over once we get through everything else. The, the, the leftover of our time, the leftover of our talents, the leftover of our abilities, the leftover of our finances. We're called to bring Him everything that is costly and meaningful with one great exception, and that is our physical death. Because Christ has accomplished it. Look at verses 23 through 28 as we look at what I like to call the covenant appearances of Jesus the covenant appearances of Jesus. He says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, verse 23, to be purified with those rites or those rituals, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What are the heavenly things themselves? Well, it's everyone who is in Christ. The tabernacle has gone away. The temple has been destroyed and is no longer available. Matter of fact, what Paul tells us in Corinthians is that every person who's in Christ is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 at the end. Therefore, honor God with your body. Honor God with your life. So we have now become the heavenly things. And we have now become purified. We have now become forgiven with better things than everything that existed under the old covenant. And the covenant promises among, among many of the covenant promises was one great covenant promise, that a king would come, that an anointed one would come, that a Messiah would come. And he would come to enact, to start, to inaugurate, to set in motion this new covenant that God promised in Jeremiah 31. I actually want to look at verses 25 and 26 first. We're going to kind of go out of order so that we can put it in order, and you'll see what that means in just a moment. He writes in verses 25 and 26, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is what I call his past appearance. 
This is the life of Jesus. This is the kingdom inaugurated at his birth. This is the covenant inaugurated and set in motion by his death and then fulfilled by his resurrection. This is his past appearance, which leads to what's theologically called justification. His death on the cross justifies you and me. Our faith in that justifies us before God. It acquits us. It makes us not guilty before God. And it is a past appearance of Jesus based upon his life on this earth. Look at what it says. It says he did this, verse 26, he appeared once for all. For every human being that ever has lived, for every human being that ever will live, through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his sacrifice is sufficient. It is enacted by our faith. It is activated by our faith and trust. But it is sufficient for everyone who has ever lived. And it was done once for all. And look at what he says. It was done once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. Now we're going to come back to put away sin in just a moment. But I want to talk about this end of the ages. In in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, as he was opening it up, he said in the last days or in, in these last days, God has spoken to us through Jesus. I get the question all the time as a pastor. Are we living in the end times? Absolutely. Because the moment Jesus ascended and took his rightful place at the hand of the Father, that began the end times. There is no other age to come other than his return and the fullness of the kingdom. Now, are we getting closer to specific end times things? Are we getting closer to maybe specific the ways that it plays out, perhaps? Although I would caution you, if Jesus himself says the Son of Man doesn't even know when his return is, I would caution you to to not go down too many rabbit trails. But to just have faith and trust and knowledge and understanding that yes, we are living in the end times, that since he went back to heaven, everything is headed to an eventual demise, and then more importantly, an eventual rebirth and recreation. He did this once for all at the end of the ages. And then look at what verse 24 says. Go back up above. He did this for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So he has appeared in the past to, through his life and to offer up this death and then, then his resurrection. He did that in the past for justification. He now appears in the present, and this would be for what we call theologically our sanctification. He lives to intercede for us. Um, the, the passage that Corey got to preach when I was on vacation speaks to this. and In chapter, uh, chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the uttermost links, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. As our mediator, he is, he is our biggest, I hate to use it this way because it's, it's not deep enough, but he's your biggest cheerleader. He is not only advocating on your behalf and mine, he is praying for us, he is interceding for us. And, and don't get the picture, don't get it twisted that like God is sitting on one chair and going, oh, that's Steve Rose, he had a bad day today. And Jesus is somehow going, oh, but please God save him, you remember my cross? Like, it's not that. 
It's that Jesus being in God's presence is like a continual day of atonement. That continually the fact that this raised Jesus is in God's presence, God is continually looking at him, understanding that what he did on the cross has enacted a covenant that is good forever and for all time for all who would believe. And he's interceding on our behalf. He's praying for us. He's, he, he's going before the Father to us. When we pray, we pray to him and we ask him to do things. We don't pray to other saints. We don't pray to other people. We don't put our faith and trust in a religious system. We put our faith and our trust in the one who, uh, for lack of a better phrase, has God's ear because he is God. And this is his present appearance in the presence of God on our behalf. It it tells us, it teaches us that God is here or that Jesus is there in that presence and he's doing what he does because we are loved. Because we are loved. God is not Zeus ready to hurl thunderbolts at each of us for the slightest little thing we do wrong. God is one who has presented his son who through his obedience went willingly to the death on the cross to enact a new covenant, to enact a new agreement, to become mediator between us and God who were forever eternally separated by our sin because we are loved. We have the the foster care event coming up this week. I'll tell you a little more about that in a moment because there's been a change with it. But uh, one of the things that through our foster care classes that we learned and we heard when we were doing that in Arizona was particularly with older kids, one of the most difficult things foster care families go through is convincing that child that comes to their house that they're truly loved. Because some of them have come from homes where they've been abused. Some have come from homes where they weren't allowed to eat. Where they, where they stashed food and hid it in places in their rooms because they, they were given very minimal amounts at meals. And one of the biggest hurdles they always have in that is convincing these children that they're loved. Now, take it out of the foster care system for a moment. If we would be very honest with ourselves, we have that same struggle sometimes too, don't we? really believing that we're loved, really believing we're worthy of love, much less from human beings, much less from God. But he is our present mediator. He's our present intercessor. He is the one who, because of God's love for us, is there in heaven on our behalf. Then finally, verses 27 and 28. He's appeared for our justification. He is appearing now for our sanctification. And he will appear for our glorification. Look at verses 27 and 28. And just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting He has appeared for our justification. He is appearing right now for our sanctification. And he will appear one day for our glorification. W.C. Fields, who was an old comedian, born in the late 1800s, died around 1943, 42, somewhere in there, I think. They, They said he wasn't a very religious man. But as he got closer to the end days of his life, he started reading the scriptures 
And the story says that there was somebody that, that noticed that change in his life, and they asked him, why all of a sudden now was he reading the Bible? Why all of a sudden now did he have an interest in what the Bible said? And his answer supposedly was loopholes. I'm just looking for loopholes. Folks, there are no loopholes with the gospel. There is no secret hidden meaning for the gospel. The gospel is clear. You and I are sinful beings. God is holy and righteous and just. Sinful beings cannot be in His presence eternally or even in His presence spiritually. And so the gospel is that Jesus has come and has instituted a new covenant, mediates a new covenant, does what He has done that no one else could do. And there's no loopholes to that. There's no hidden meanings to that. There's no getting by the skin of your teeth with that. It is either faith and trust in Him or it is nothing. And people hear that sometimes in our world and they go, gosh, it's such, a, such an exclusive religion you teach. No, it's inclusive because it's for all. It's for any who would believe. It's for everyone from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe if you want to do the A to Z kind of a thing. But for any who would hear and know and understand and listen and, and hear this gospel message, that it is for them. And he's coming again. And look at what it says, verse 27. It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There is no loophole. There is no, there is no second chance. There is no when someone dies praying them out of purgatory. We come to the end of our days here on this earth and then what's left for us is a judgment and judgment is abated. Judgment is avoided because of our faith and our trust in Christ. And when He comes, look at how it's going to come. He says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, He's repeating that, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. There's, no, there's not going to be another sin offering made or brought with Jesus. To use a phrase from TV commercials, this is a limited time only deal. And it is limited to the time of your death or it is limited to the time that He returns. But when that time is up, that time is up. And he doesn't return to deal with sin again because he's already done it once for all. He comes to eagerly, uh, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I have to ask those of you who are brothers and sisters in Christ that are here today or that are watching online, are you eagerly waiting him? Because my concern, my fear, both for myself and for others is that we, follow, we have fallen so in love with this world so in love with this world that we, we mimic the prayers of Augustine. Augustine was a 4th century theologian out of Africa. And it's reported in his memoirs, in his confessions, that as a young man he said this prayer, Lord, make me chaste, which is a fancy word for being sexually pure. Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. And I think sometimes our prayers are, Lord Jesus, come back, but hang we haven't got to see Hawaii yet. I don't have grandkids yet. We've got a big 50th wedding anniversary planned. 
We list all these earthly things. And what we ought to be crying out in our prayers is, Lord Jesus, come. Come. We are eagerly waiting. We are eagerly anticipating. We want to be removed from this world that is dominated by sin and be taken into your presence forever. Are we eager? Or will as it be for some of us, as Jesus teaches in the Gospels, more of a thief in the night moment? I want to close with two things here. I want to go back to verse 26 and 28 for just a moment. Verse 26, towards the end of it, it says this, Once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then in verse 28, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. In Leviticus 16, as the Day of Atonement is being given, the instructions for the Day of Atonement is being given, Leviticus 16, verses 20 through 22, listen to what God says. When he, meaning the high priest, when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meeting for the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself in a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free. There was this moment in the Day of Atonement process where the the extra-biblical sources tell us that special pathway for this live goat. In the early part of Leviticus 16, there were two goats, and they cast lots. One was for the Lord that would be sacrificed, and the other would be for this, what would be known as the scapegoat. So if you're ever on Jeopardy, and somebody, the question is, what was the origin of the scapegoat? Now you know. And on that live goat, after, the, after all the blood sacrifice had been made, after all the, the blood had been strewn all over the tabernacle and all over the, the mercy seat of the Ark of Covenant and everywhere else, the high priest would come and he would lay his hands on this goat, these bloodied hands. He would lay his hands on this goat and they would lead that goat out into the wilderness. And, and, and extra biblical sources tell us that oftentimes leading out of, the, out of the city, there would be booths and tents and of, of people within the nation who, who had set up to go along this pathway because they wanted to see the goat go. They wanted to see the goat go with this man, but more importantly, they wanted to see the man come back without the goat. Because when the man came back without the goat, what it said to them was, your sins are forgiven for another year. When the man came back without the goat, it was, you're, you're purified, you're clean before God, you, you now have a clear conscience, you have a do-over. And, 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 and these, these extra-biblical sources tell us that when the man would come back through that path, that they would have rejoicing and joy and dancing and, and have great feasts because they knew where they were before the Lord in that moment. And understand what happened at the cross was that God laid on Jesus every sin and every iniquity and every transgression of any who have ever lived. And in faith and trust in Him, there should be rejoicing. In faith and trust in Him, there should be joy. 
in faith and trust in Him, we know, acknowledge that unlike the Day of Atonement where that, that scene was repeated every year, it's happened once and for all. And the imagery, the language that's used there in Hebrews is that same language that's used for the goat in Leviticus. They put the sins on the goat. Jesus has put away our sin. He bore the sins of, of mankind. The goat bore the sins of Israel, carried them. The only difference being Jesus has done it once and done it for all, for all who would believe. Oh, how can you not eagerly wait for that to come back? How can you not eagerly wait for that day? And, and more importantly, how can you not go to neighbor, to brother, to sister, to cousin, to father, to mother, to grandparents who don't know this and say to them, there is a mediator of a new covenant that is greater than your religion, that is greater than your tradition, that is greater than your morals, that supersedes anything and everything you could ever come up with. And his name is Jesus. How can we not be about that? You can deceive yourself. I can deceive myself into saying, well, we live in Kentucky and we're in the Bible Belt and everybody knows this. I assure you, not everybody does. I, had a, uh, I ran into an old friend the other day, one, one, a man that shares his faith like no other. And he said, I am astounded by how many people I come into contact with today who don't have the slightest inkling of the gospel. Oh, they know about church. And they know about religion. And they know enough to know that if I go to church and I, if I have a little religion, that at my funeral somebody's probably going to preach that I was a good man. He said, but they have no idea what the gospel is. How can we not share what those of us who are in Christ have. And how can we not eagerly wait for not a man to walk back having gotten rid of a goat, but for the, the man to come back to bring in God's kingdom to its fulfillment. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.